You're listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Good morning. My name's Todd. Uh, I have the privilege of being one of the uh, teachers here at Anthem Church. And um, if you're me, it's an exciting time in life right now, um, which you're not, so... So bummer for you, but exciting for me. Um, a few weeks back, some of you got to be here. I got to baptize my daughter um, just right over there um, in a horse trough, which was awesome. Um, this week, I just turned 39 years old, so um, I'm on my 30s victory lap is what I'm calling it. <laughs> like Just like one more lap around 30s, be like, in your face, 30s, you know? So don't want to get cocky, though, <laughs> until, you, <laughs> until you hit 40s. Just like, all right, so one more go around in my 30s. Um, yesterday... I celebrated the 11-year anniversary of the day I proposed to my wife, so that's pretty fun. Um, And then today, my daughter Penelope is seven and a half years old, and we have six kids, and I still keep track of half birthdays, so (laughs) So I have a calendar full of dates I need to remember. So it's fun times to be me, Um, and I'm excited to be here this morning, Um, like Josh mentioned. Uh, we're, we're normally in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we have one more week left of that. Our cadence here, if you're new to Anthem Church, is we just go through a book of the Bible. We just preach what the Word says. But today we're taking a break um, to talk about the Reformation because it's a big deal. 500 years. Um, 500 years. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to a door in Wittenberg um, this Tuesday, 500 years ago. And it's a big deal um, because it largely sparked... Um, what we know as the Protestant Reformation. And Stan made aware to me that I need to let you people know we're not talking about Martin Luther King Jr. (laughs) Apparently some people think that that's who that is. That was like 50 years ago. (laughs) So like 500, you need to take that times 10, (laughs) carry a couple zeros, and then you'll be right about the sweet spot of where we're aiming this morning. Um, But I want to talk a little bit about that this morning just because it's such a monumental thing and it's a big deal to me as a person who cares about the Bible and church history and wants to be part of that line of great men and women and look back on that and get excited to think about people who have loved the word and you're not alone when you sit down and read Augustine or when you sit down and read Luther like people have just worshiped Jesus the same way by reading his word for hundreds and thousands of years and we sing a song that have been sung by people for 500 years people have been singing that song Those words that echoed through this room this morning have echoed through churches for 500 years. You are part of something if you are a part of Christ that is much bigger than just Columbia, Missouri in 2017. And so I want you to appreciate what you are grafted into and like the joy and the privilege to be part of a legacy and a lineage like that. And so the first thing I just want to address is like when you hear Protestant Reformation, like when people hear that, they hear the word protest, right? Like what are... Who is upset about what? And who is picketing something? <laughs> um, but I, what I want you to hear, to start off, I want you to reformulate the way you hear that word. You hear Protestant Reformation, you hear protest, you hear angry, you hear upset. And what I want you to hear is pro-testimony. Because that's the way they would have heard it originally. That was the impetus behind it. It was, we are pro-testimony. Whatever the Bible says, that's what we are for. And we stand by it. And we die by it. That is what is most important. Whatever the Bible says, we do. And that's where the heart of it came from. So don't hear it as the heart of like people that are angry with something and trying to overthrow a system. It's a reformation, not a revolution. They weren't trying to start something new. They were trying to bring something back 
to where it was supposed to be. And so I want you to hear pro-testimony. Um, and even like Chesterton said, like the true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. You love, the, and out of that deep love for what's behind you, you push ahead. And not because you hate what's in front of you, but you only come against it in as much as it is attacking the thing that you love. So that's where we're at. That's where I want to set the tone for this morning. And so the big idea, which is going to carry out throughout the morning, is this. We can only go faithfully forward by looking carefully back to God's word. We can only go faithfully forward by looking carefully back to God's word. And so Luther had 95 theses. Um, and I know that we're part of like the too long didn't read generation. So, I mean, I'm guilty of that. I just saw something this weekend. Somebody sent me, I was like, I'm not reading that. That's too long. <laughs> like if it's, if it's, you got to boil it down for me. I don't know who has the time. Um, so let's just look at the first one. Let's just look at the very first thesis. The very first thing, if you had walked up to that door and you were literate, which would have been a privilege in those days, um, thank you, Reformation, for that, among other things. I would encourage you to study out the Reformation. We meet as a church, and I'm a lay leader preaching today because of the Reformation. I'm not a professional Christian, which would have been the only person who would have been allowed to share the word with you back 500 years ago. So one of many things, the fact that you can read is largely a product of the Protestant Reformation, printing the Bible in a language that people understood and encouraging them to learn how to read so that they could read what God said. So let's just look at the very first theses. I have it up on a slide for you. Uh, this is just the very first one. So if you were the too long didn't read, you'd probably at least read this before you quit, I hope. <laughs> you can at least get through one sentence. So this is the very first thing you would have saw on that door. And listen, the 95 theses were things that he was, Luther had a Bible, he didn't have a chip on his shoulder. He had a Bible in his hand. And he was reading, and he was looking in the Bible, and he would look around, and he'd look in the Bible, and he'd look around, and he'd be like, things are not adding up. And so he had 95 observations of instances where he's like, this and that do not match. And something has to change. And I vote us. Something has to change. Either the book or us. And I vote us. And so the very first thing, right out of the gate, he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. <clears throat> the very first thesis out of the gate is that repentance is a lifestyle. Repentance is what the Christian life is made up of. It's not the thing you do that gets you in the door, and then you just leave the key in the door, and now you're in the house. It is the Christian life. And the weird reason that is, is the word repent, literally it's a Greek word, metanoia. It means change your mind. Like repent means change your mind. And what he's saying is, if you've had to change your mind initially to enter God's kingdom, you might want to get used to that. It's going to happen a lot. <laughs> you're going to need to change your mind a lot. And it's not going to be just a one-time deal. It's going to be a lifetime of changing your mind. And not just changing it in general, not just changing it to what the culture says, not just changing it just to change it, but to change it back to what God has said. And the reason why this is a process, the reason why it has to happen this way, the reason why a life of repentance is what the Christian life is. is uh, I have Hebrews 2, verse 1 up here. I feel like this will help clarify for us, and this will kind of give us some language that will get us through the rest of the morning. Hebrews 2, verse 1 says it this way, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We have to pay attention to things that have already been said, because when we don't, we drift. Repentance is continuous, because drift is our default. Drift is what happens when you do nothing. <laughs> if you don't do anything, 
you drift. Something is still happening to you if you do nothing. No one goes upstream by doing nothing, right? You guys have seen float trips. <laughs> when you do nothing, the river just takes you with it, right? And those people are doing more than nothing. <laughs> but they're just, they're not doing anything to further their life. They're not trying to better themselves. They're not trying to improve themselves. But they're doing nothing at best if you just lay back in the tube. And what happens? The current takes you somewhere. There is no doing nothing and staying at the same spot. You are in a moving environment. And if you do nothing, it will carry you wherever it wills. It will take you with it. And I know it feels like progress sometimes. Like, hey, I'm just I'm getting somewhere. <laughs> yeah, you're getting further downstream. <laughs> it's getting worse. Like, even a dead fish can swim downstream. <laughs> right? So, like, it may feel like I'm accomplishing something. Like, well, I started yesterday, I was here, and now I'm here. It's like, yeah, you're further worse off than you were yesterday. And if you do nothing... The currents are strong enough that they will pull you, and you are always being pulled somewhere. There is no not being pulled somewhere. So you need to wrap your mind around that, so we must pay much closer attention so that we're not just pulled in the wrong direction, pulled away from what Jesus has done. And so the verse says, more than just don't drift. Like, it's not the command isn't don't drift. The command is pay attention. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to pay attention to what we have heard. We want to pay much closer attention to the good news, which is the meaning of the word gospel. The word gospel just means good news in Greek. And so the first thing we need to realize about the good news is that it's news, right? Like when you share news, news is something that happened. You are not the good news, Nick. Like you can't be the gospel. I don't even know what that means. That'd be like saying you need to be the headline, I don't know what that means exactly. Like, the good news is something that happened. News. You get a news feed on your scroll, and it's very, not very often news worth knowing, but on your Facebook, there's news, and it's called a news feed. It's what people have already done. You're reading, you're reporting. And so when you share the gospel, you're just sharing what happened. You're sharing something that happened. You're telling the good news. And so I want to go back to my initial point. Luther did not invent the gospel in 1517. Clear? We didn't invent Christianity 500 years ago. He was reforming. He was going back to what was in the book that he saw we had drifted away from. We had drifted away from something, and he wanted to get back to it. So what I want to do this morning is show you the gospel in the Bible, just in the spirit of Reformation. But to be like, like a magician that like makes it harder on themselves, you know, like the first they blindfold themselves, and then they chain themselves, and then they put themselves in a straitjacket, and then they fast for 40 days, and then they dunk them underwater, and then they say, get out. <laughs> like to make it like more impressive, I'm not just going to go back to Romans or Galatians or something easy, <laughs> something you'd expect like where Luther actually discovered the gospel to show you that this is how God works and has. I want to show you from the Old Testament that this has always been the plan. Because if I can show it to you there, then it's clear that in 1517, they should have known better. Because if they should have known 700 years before Jesus was ever born, they should have known downstream. Make sense? Okay, so if I can show you there, you'd believe me, right? If I can show you in a book that was written 700 years before Jesus was ever born, ever took a breath as a human being, then that clearly is God's plan and has always been the plan. So we're going to be spending a lot of time in Isaiah this morning. So if you have your Bibles, your apps, turn back there. We'll be jumping around a little bit. But just remember, we can only go faithfully forward by looking carefully back to God's word. And so we can find the gospel in Isaiah. We can find the whole thing, every bit and piece of it that was lost in 1517 that Luther had to recover had been there for 
2,200 years at the time he discovered it. It was always there. He didn't invent it. He found it. And so the very first element of the gospel that I want us to focus on that is there that we need to understand first is that our bad is worse than we think it is. You need to understand how bad things are. before. Good news isn't good until you understand how bad things are. And so that's where the gospel begins, is that our bad is worse than we think it is. Isaiah 53, verse 6, says it this way. Now remember, this is 700 years before Jesus was ever born. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Bible says people are like sheep. They drift. <laughs> like, sheep drift. They don't get anywhere in a hurry. <laughs> I don't know if you know anything about sheep, but they don't make good time. <laughs> no, matter, no matter what they do, they're never getting there pretty quickly. But they do drift. They wander is what the word is. They've gone astray. They kind of just wander off. It's just one step here, one step there, and all of a sudden they find themselves very far away. But they don't get there quickly. None of the stuff happens overnight. It's usually drift. It's usually they stop hearing the shepherd's voice. They stop paying attention. They get away from the pack, and then they just kind of wander off. And the Bible says all of us have done that. And all of us, it says then in in the second part of it, says we've turned to our own way. That word turn is like the idea of look. Like we've fixed our eyes on what we want to look at. We've turned to what we think is best. And because of that, we kind of have wandered off. Instead of listening to the shepherd and turning and looking at him for our instructions to take care of us, we've kind of looked other places. And when we do that, we wander off. And notice it says all, everyone. Now, I've studied the Hebrew a lot. And as it turns out, all means all. And everyone means everyone. This is true of all people. So before you have that person in your head who are like, man, I wish so-and-so would come to church today. They need to hear that they're not doing very well. All. This is us. This describes each and every one of us. This is who we are. And a lot of times our biggest problem is that we don't think we have a problem. Isn't that true for you? It was true for me. Like when I became a Christian, I, I thought I was a Christian, which was my biggest stumbling block to becoming one until I heard the word preached. And I was like, wait a minute, I have a problem. And I never even knew it. I don't worship Jesus. I just ten, attend church. And so maybe that's you this morning. You're like, I didn't even know I had a problem, or I don't want to think about it. That was me, and we have a problem. The Bible says it. And it's true of each and every one of us. Uh, to complicate matters worse, look at Isaiah 64, verse 7, <clears throat> which says, There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. So not only do we, like, wander off on, a reg, on the regs, uh, we, <laughs> we kind of, that's our default is that we drift. <clears throat> Old people, it's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of you, and apparently, I, <clears throat> if I'm aware of it, you can figure it out. <clears throat> um, so we drift. This is what happens. But not only that, but nobody is seeking God. When you drift, nobody's drifting towards God. Nobody does nothing and finds themselves in heaven. Nobody just wanders in, like, where am I? This place is shiny. <laughs> like, that doesn't happen. <laughs> If you wander, you end up in a darker place than you began. And you're like, how did I get here? Nobody says, how did I get here? Because it's so nice. It smells great. It's like a Febreze commercial, you know, where it's like, it smells great. And then they take the blindfold off. You're like, I'm in hell. (laughs) Like, that's what we do when we drift. And it says, no one calls upon your name. No one. No one is seeking God. No one. We don't have seeker-friendly services because people aren't seeking God. No one is seeking him. He seeks people, 
which we will see later, and that is good news. But on the front end, you have to understand the bad news. If you are found, amazing grace, I once was lost, and somebody found me. I was blind, and somebody made me see. Understand the language that's important. Like these hymns are important. They thought about the words they chose. Like, and the reason it's in, it reinforces biblical truth. Now, some of you hear this and you're like, that sounds like a bit much. Like, that's too far. I agree with you. People are kind of turds. And uh, if I have a kid and I leave him alone, he's more likely to punch his sister than he is to, you know, buy her a birthday present. I get that. But, like, but like it's not that bad, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not that bad. And the reason I know this is because a recent survey by Barna Research Group Ask this question. Here's a phrase. And in your own hearts and minds, just think about what you would say to this. The question is, like, is this true? God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. 50% of evangelicals, which means 50% of people who are post-Protestant, they're Protestant, they, they find their roots in a man who said, the Bible says this, and we're going to stand by it, even if it costs us our lives. 50% of people who attend, attend churches that are evangelical and say that they believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, 50% of those <clears throat> thought that was a direct biblical quotation. It's not, FYI. <laughs> or I wouldn't be taking the time to point it out to you. And 84% thought it was a biblical idea. So that means 50% of the people think that that line, God helps those who help themselves, is actually in your Bible. And another 34% are smart enough to know that that's not in the Bible, but basically think that's the message anyways. They think that's a good summary of the Bible message. And the Bible message, that's essentially like saying God saves those who are trying to save themselves. Is that what you believe this morning? Does your heart believe that God saves those who are trying to save themselves? It's subtle. And when you say it that baldly, it's like, no, I wouldn't believe that. But do you? Somewhere, deep down, do you kind of feel like God's on the team on the, for the A team? The people who are doing best, he's kind of with them. And that's the people he's cheering for, or the people who are already doing it. And he kind of picks the winners. He looks down the corridor of history and says, those guys are going to do well. I pick them. I like them. I want a museum of saints, and I'm just going to pick the polished ones who already arrived. <clears throat> that is what 84% of people who would call themselves Christians believe is how God works, that he saves people who are trying to save themselves. They basically believe that I need God. I need God. I will admit that. I need him. But I just need him for like that last 20%. I can get myself like 80% of the way there. But I, I know I need God, but it's like that 20%. I need Jesus to like be the bridge for that last part. Not the whole chasm, but I need God, but it's just at the end, to that final push. He's like coffee, you know? <laughs> like, I was going to get up today and do all kinds of stuff. I do it way better with coffee. <laughs> like, God, people think of Jesus like coffee. Like, I was going to do that anyways. I was just going to be grouchy, and it was going to take me longer. <laughs> but if I have coffee, I do it better. And that's how they view Jesus, is that you need him to make things better, but you are already kind of going to do it that kind of stuff anyways. And that is not true, like we just read. Nobody is doing that. Nobody is trying their best to love God on their own without his help. So the second point, which that leads us into, is our good is not as good as we wish it was. <laughs> so if our bad is worse than we think it is, it only complicates the matter in that our good is not as good as we wish it was. And here's where things get fun for a Sunday morning. 
And I'll show you why in a second here. Isaiah 64, verse 5 and 6. You're not delighting yet. You will in a little bit. (laughs) Or you'll leave horrified. I'm not sure what. One or the other. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So that sounds bad, right? If you think that's bad, hang in there. It gets worse. Polluted garment is not dirty clothes. This is so crazy. This is in your Bible. Polluted garment literally is, and you, this might be your earmuffs moment if you have kids. <laughs> like, I'm not sure. It's not that. I'm not going to cuss or anything, but it's, it's not going to be on Caleb anytime soon. <laughs> it's not going to be like the family verse of the day. No family has this across their threshold. Like, <laughs> all our righteous deeds are our best, our righteousness, the best on your best day. On your best day, Buckaloo, on your best day. On your best day, when you, everything's firing on all cylinders, you don't screw up, you read your Bible, you didn't cuss in traffic, you, you got to work on time, you worked hard, you didn't extend your lunch longer than you should have, you didn't steal paper supplies, blah, 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 you didn't, you know, whatever, you picked up something nice for a friend that you thought of, you prayed, you remembered all the stuff you're supposed to do. On your best day, it's like polluted garment. And a polluted garment <clears throat> is literally bloody menstrual rags. Literally. <laughs> That's what the word is. And some of you are like, I wish you hadn't have said that just now. <laughs> I wish I wouldn't have just said that just now. I'm with you. <clears throat> and some of you are like, that's inappropriate. You shouldn't talk about that in church. I'm kind of offended that you would even say that. That's kind of gross. That's the point. It is gross. And your best is like that. If you show up in heaven and say, here, Jesus, I tried my best. What you are handing him is a mound of bloody menstrual rags. Do you, th- you expect a high five for that? Do you expect anybody to be like, thank you so much, it's so thoughtful. <laughs> and to complicate matters worse, like we have a sanitized version of even that, because we're talking like 700 years before Jesus was born. So this is not like something you buy disposable from Walmart. This is something you have to hand wash. So, and I know it's gross, I get it. But I want you to get the picture because Isaiah, would, it would have been more shocking to the people that heard him say this because they would have immediately known what he means. It's bad. That's the point. And it's gross. And if that's our best, if that's our best, then what hope do we have? You just told me my bad is worse than I thought it was. And now you're telling me my good isn't even good enough? I thought you said this was about good news. I mean, I expect that from the Old Testament, right? That's all hellfire and brimstone. I get it. (laughs) Like, I expect that to be in there. (laughs) I'm not entirely shocked. I'd be shocked if you had said that Jesus said that. That would have thrown me off. But the fact that Isaiah said it kind of makes sense because they were all kind of grouchy back then, right? Like, God was kind of figuring things out. He wasn't quite mellowed out. He hadn't got his meds worked out yet. He was still grouchy and said stuff like this all the time. But this is how bad things are. And I spend time focusing on it because if you have 30 minutes with a doctor and he goes into depth about how bad your disease is that you didn't understand when you walked in the blood work came back and it's bad it's bad Nate it's bad and here's what's going to happen to you here's what this disease is going to do to your body and your mind here's what's going to happen to your family here's the resources that's going to be drained from your bank account before you die inevitably and succumb to this if I spend 30 minutes on that and then in one breath tell you about a treatment how bought in are you 
How ready are you to do whatever the treatment is? Like, I don't need many words to convince you if you believe that it's bad. So I want you to believe how bad it is, how bad the Bible says our situation is. We are not drowning in a pool crying out for God to save us. We are dead at the bottom of the pool. Not splashing, not making a sound. You are dead, the Bible says, at the bottom of a pool. So if you are found at all, it means he dove down and got you. Not because you got his attention. Not because you splashed big enough or made loud enough noise or blew enough bubbles up into the air. You were dead. And it's bad. And the reason I want that to stick with you is because I want you to understand how awesome God is. Because our bad is worse than we think it is. And our good is not as good as we wish it was, but God is more glorious than we ever imagined. If you can wrap your mind around how bad it is, you will understand how awesome and how glorious and gracious God is. And so the third point of the gospel is, is what has he done about how bad things are, right? Things are bad. Jesus died for our sins. I know that you're in church. You expect me to say that. But take a moment to remember and think about that. Understanding how bad things are. Jesus chose to die for the person who was that bad. Jesus died in our place for our sin. And that's in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verse 5. 700 years before Jesus was ever born, God calls his shots. He points into the future and says this. He says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then jump to verse 10 where he says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This was not our idea. This was God's idea. You are dead at the bottom of the pool. You're not making a sound. God chose to seek you out. He chose to find you. And our bad is worse than we think. It's bad enough that someone has to die. Have you considered that fact? That things are so bad that someone has to die. The wages of sin is death. I know I cheated, New New Testament. But things are bad. Someone has to die. So bad that Jesus would come down and say, I will do it. I will take their place. I will die in Dallas's place. I will die. I will go on the cross that Dallas deserves. I will die so that he can go free. Someone has to die, and it will be you or Jesus. It will be you or Jesus, and if it's Jesus, then it is for you, and if it's not Jesus, it will be you for your own sin, and you will die in your own sin. If it wasn't that bad, do you really think God would have sent his son to die if there was another way Can you imagine me sending Atticus, my firstborn son, to die for any of you? Because I can't. I love Atticus with a heart of a father. My firstborn son, the very first time I became a dad was when I held him in my arms. I would never let anything happen to him. And God loves Jesus more than I love Atticus. And God sent his son to die for people for their sins because it was the only way. God would be foolish to do it if there was some, like, option B that was less hurtful. Would I ever, how bad would things have to be for me to even consider that with Atticus? It's bad, and it's so bad that someone has to die, and God chose to send his son. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He chose to do this, not in response to your pleas or cries for help, but because of his great love 
for the world. He sent his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I cheated again. Sorry. New Testament. But as great as this is that he died for our sins, we still have the second problem, right? Our good is not as good as we wish it was. So, like, if you're acquitted, if you're in court and accused of a crime, and then the jury comes back and says, not guilty, you don't get to, like, go and have dinner at the judge's house. I'm not sure if you're aware. That's not how it works. (laughs) Like, that just means you don't have to go to jail, right? Like, if you're acquitted of a crime, it means you just don't have to go to jail. But you don't get to be adopted into the judge's family, And to go to heaven is more than just not being a criminal. (laughs) Does that make sense? It's not just like, well, I'm not a criminal. Shouldn't I get to live here? It's like, no, you have to be in. And so God has done something about that as well. The fourth element is that Jesus has lived in our place for our righteousness. He has died in our place for our sin, but he has lived in our place for our righteousness. And I I really need Christian souls to listen to me this morning on this point, because this part is we drift away from this all the time. I think we understand that Jesus died for our sins, and you expect me to say that because it's Sunday and we're at church. But the fact that Jesus lived for our righteousness is a a fact that's often lost on us. So we can sit around and feel like, I know that God's forgiven me, but I don't think he really likes me all that much. I feel like he's kind of reluctantly like, I don't know, I died for Josiah, but I guess. You know, like, oh, Josiah, stupid Josiah, making all these mistakes. So bummed out. I just wish you were better. But, I mean, I died for you, so I guess you're in. And I feel like, I think that's our default, is like we feel like God doesn't like us all that much. He's willing to die for us, but he doesn't really like us that much. But I want you to hear, if you are in Christ, he sees you the way he sees Jesus. Remember how, I, how does God feel about Jesus? He loves him with an unending love. He sees no spot or blemish in him whatsoever. And it's true of him, and he sees him that way. And if you are in Jesus, that's how he sees you. And that is our only hope. Not just that we don't have to go to jail, but if we're going to live in the Father's house, we need to be with Jesus. If somebody shows up in my house as a stranger, I might kick them out. But if they show up with Atticus, I'm like, oh, Atticus, who's your friend? Because they're with him. If you show up to heaven with Jesus, you're in. Your family. It's like, hey, who's your friend, Jesus? They won't even introduce him to me. Introduce her to me. It's about being in him. Look at Isaiah 26, verse 12. I love like, how plainly this says this. And remember, guys, this is 700 years before Paul would ever write Romans, 700 years before Jesus was ever born. Look at Isaiah 26, verse 12. <clears throat> in the last verses, we saw that he made a way of peace for us by crucifying his own son for us. But look, he, look at here. He says, O oh Lord, you will establish peace. So we have peace again with God. You will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our work for us. Not only have you taken the bullet for all of our bad, but you have done all the good that you require. Don't forget that before Jesus died on a cross, he lived 33 spotless years. You think dying on a cross is hard, and I'm sure it is. 33 years of spotless record. Never doing anything wrong. Always doing what is right. Without exception. Day and night. For you. Did Jesus need to do that for himself to go to heaven? No, he has the passport. He just came from there. He just came down. He's like, yeah, I can check in anytime. I got this right here. I belong there. I'm a citizen of heaven. He belongs there. He's the king of heaven. Surely heaven will open its doors and let him back in. He was doing that for you. Because you need more than just your sins paid for. You need righteousness credited to your account. You need to be rich in good works. So you have two problems. 
If you need to be rich, you have two problems if you're accruing debt. Does that make sense? You are both accruing debt and you don't have riches. Jesus takes care of them both in one fell swoop, in a perfect life, sacrificial death, and then a victorious resurrection that shows and validates that God approved of everything he did. And he lives now forever to intercede for those who will turn to him and believe in him. And that's the fifth point of the gospel. The last point that we're going to find in Isaiah is how do we gain access to this? Like, that's great. I'm bad. My good's bad. <laughs> but Jesus paid for my bad and he lived for my good. So how do I get in that? If that's your heart, you're like, I want, to, I want in. How do I get part of that? And this is, was the mantra of the Reformation. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And I know that that's in Ephesians, but it's in Isaiah. That idea has always been around. That is how God saves people. It's always been the plan. And I want to show you, as we end here our time this morning, in Isaiah 45, the power of these words that were written so long before any of these events actually took place. Look at Isaiah 45, 21 through 22. And hear the weight of these words. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. You feel the weight of what he is saying? Like, this is powerful, heavy stuff. You couldn't be more exclusive and more confident and more assertive of what I promised to do and what the way things are. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. I am righteous. I have righteousness, and I'm willing to give it to you. And I am a Savior. I am willing to die for what you deserve. And there is no other. There is zero other way. I am the way, and I am making a way through my Son. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. That includes us in Columbia, Missouri. Isaiah wrote this to a very specific people in a very specific place. But the proclamation was for all the ends of the earth, to people who had never even heard the name of Yeshua or the name of Jesus, like us. It it reached us somehow. 2,200 years since this was written, it's reached us here this morning. And I'm saying it to you. And God's word for you is as clear this morning as it was for them there. Turn to me and be saved. And remember, that word turn is the word look. Just look. Just look at the cross. Look at your salvation. See it being done for you. See a perfect life hanging on a tree, a sacrificial death for your sin, and see him three days later rising from the grave, declaring that I am victorious over sin, Satan, and death, and if you roll with me, you're good. <laughs> you are in, because I, I am a shoe-in. God loves me, and I have done everything for you. Believe in that. Believe in me. Stop putting faith and hope in your own works, in your own effort. Trust that my effort is enough, and you will be saved. Turn to me, and I promise I will save you. Luther did not invent this 500 years ago. Do you see that now? (laughs) Luther did not invent this language. This has always been there, and we drift away from this. It's our default is to drift away from it, so we need to pay much closer attention to what is true. Because our bad is worse than we think it is. And our good is not as good as we wish it was. But our God is more glorious than we ever imagined he is. 
our God is more glorious than we ever imagined he is. And so I want to transition into a time of communion where we can now respond physically, mentally, spiritually, all parts of you. I want you to consider responding to this. What the scripture said is he wants you to turn to him, look to him. In Pilgrim's Progress, my son Atticus became a Christian listening to the story of Christian who has a heavy burden on his back and he finds his way like by God's grace on the path. The evangelist tells him where to go and he finds himself at the foot of the cross and he looks up at the cross and his burden falls off and it rolls down the hill and into a tomb and it's never seen ever again. And immediately angels show up and take off his dirty rags and put him in new white linen clothes. And that night I read that to my son, broke him and he spent his night crying saying, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want this burden anymore. And it surprised Christian in the story that just by the simple act of looking at the cross that his burden was removed. Just looking at it, just looking to Jesus solved all of his problems in terms of his salvation. His burden was gone, and now he was clean just by looking at the cross. And so I want you to respond today. There was two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and I'll end on this, who were dejected. They were following Jesus, and then Jesus died, and so they're bummed. And it's been three days, and they're like, man, this sucks. I thought this was going to be something, and now he's dead. They had drifted. They had drifted away from what they had heard. And so Jesus meets them on a road, and he does two things. He opens up the Old Testament and says, here I am. He opens up Moses and the prophets, like Isaiah, and says, you should have seen this coming. You should know better. Pay much more attention to what you have heard. And then he sits down, and he breaks bread with them. And as they break bread, their eyes are opened. And they're like, it's been Jesus this whole time. What are we doing? I'm so confused. Like, how did I not know this? Wasn't my heart burning within me when he was talking to us about the scriptures? And in the simple act of breaking bread, they realized who their Savior was. And they got their focus back on what they should be looking at and turned away from the drift and anchored themselves back into Jesus. So this morning we respond. The band will come up and play as they do so. Make your way up to the communion tables. There's gluten-free over here. Take off a piece of that bread. And communion is about remembering what Jesus did. It's remembering the finished work of God, who on a cross, John 19, 30, said, it is finished, and he meant it. Do you believe him? Do you believe that it is finished? Because if it is, then come in faith, believing that he did it all, and he said he would, and he did. And he put his stamp on it and said, it's finished, paid in full, done, Come, take a piece of that and put it in the cup. Put it in your mouth and believe. Have your eyes open to who Jesus is. And if you've done that before, do it again. Remember, it's about reformation. It's about going back because we can only go faithfully forward by looking carefully back to what God has said. And when we do that, we will be with him and in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word is so clear and has been for so long. I pray you'd protect us from drift from believing things that aren't true, from accepting ideas about you that don't come from you. You've told us what we are like. Give us faith to believe what you say about us. Help us not to find our identity in anything from anywhere else, but what you say is true. If you say it's true, I want to believe it. And you've also told us about what you've done about that problem. You make known to us how bad it is, and then you offer the solution. I love that line from Amazing Grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. By your grace, you put me in a place where I understood who I was. You made me aware of my great need, and then you turned around and provided everything I ever needed. 
you are more glorious than I imagined. I walked in here this morning thinking that things were not that bad, and I thought my good was good enough. I hear you, and I listen to you, and I, I believe you are correct. My bad is worse, and my good is not as good, but you are more glorious than I ever imagined. May we respond today by taking communion and believing and remembering the finished work of Jesus Christ for us.